that song, Present Memories, and I asked Bill to lead it. So we're going to have a funeral? No, we're not. Precious memories are many ways that we can look at them. And in our text today, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, especially where I'll turn to it, will be in verses 6 through 10, that Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, as you always think kindly of us. And that tells me about memories. The NIV translates that line, that phrase in there, you always think kindly of us, says, have pleasant memories of us. Pleasant memories, precious memories. I think they're there. And we all have precious memories, pleasant memories of good times. And sometimes letters to home when someone's been away for a while, well, especially on the battlefield, are really precious to be received. Sometimes they're, they cause sadness. There's a 22-year-old who was in Iraq, I forget the year, it was recently. It could have been within the last 10 years that we've been involved there. But he wrote a letter to his girlfriend, how he, maybe it was even his fiancée, how she was the love of his life and how he would look fondly and remembering the great times they had together as he looked at her picture every day and he would, before he went to bed, he would kiss his fingers and touch her face on the photo and have it right there above his headboard where he slept. But he started the letter in a sad way, if you're reading this letter, it's because I'm dead. He told her about the memories that he had, how he truly loved her from the depth of his heart and just wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. And that as she watched over him while he was on the battlefield, he would now watch over her in death. And, you know, that tugs at the heartstrings. But it brings about the idea of some precious memories that we have with those whom we hold dear. In World War II, I find it here in my notes, a soldier wrote from Munich, Germany, 1945, on May 2nd, said, Dearest Mom and Lou, a year ago I was, today I was sweating out shells on Anzio Beach. Today I'm sitting in Hitler's luxuriously furnished apartment in Munich, writing a few lines at home, uh, writing a few lines, yeah. Well, I lost the second page. I hate it when that happens. I had it. I'll get to it. Anyway, he went on to say how he was writing a few lines from Hitler's luxuriously uh, apartment. Reminded of ten miles down the road, there was the Dachau concentration camp. That was anything but luxurious. And the tragedies and the horrors of war. But at least his letter probably was well received. Because if he was sitting in Hitler's apartment at that time, that meant the Allies were victorious and he was safe and would be home soon, barring any accidents, of course. Precious memories. And there are some good times. Recently, I don't know if the Winter Olympics have concluded yet or not. I haven't been keeping up on them. But, uh, 
I was thinking back and I was doing some looking about the Olympics and I came across the story of the Summer Olympics in Beijing in August of 2008. And it was just two weeks before that time in August that an archer, he's an Arizona native, his name is Brad, Brady Ellison, he was baptized in a, at the outside of the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California. His coach, Kissick Lee, and at that time three of the other archers met regularly and sing hymns and read the Bible because that was a matter of faith. Lee said, I wanted to show them who I am. I'm a witness of Jesus, not just an archery coach. So I have to encourage them how and how we can change in Christ. I don't know much about Kissick Lee other than he was South Korea's archery coach and he took them to top levels in the Olympics for four seasons. He did the same in Australia and he's doing the same with our program in the United States. But I know that he's a man of faith and he respects the Gospels. He loves Christ. And the Gospel is good news and it's good news when people proclaim the Gospel and get people into the Bible. And so we praise God when the gospel is preached. Pleasant memories. I know that you have some. Pleasant memories, precious memories, however you'd like to call them. The memories that we have of home, of church, of children, grandchildren. And maybe most importantly is when our children obey the gospel. I can remember each one of our children's baptisms. Heather and Abby were baptized in Hayes, Kansas, I can remember vaguely, uh, because it's been a while. Some of what transpired with at least Heather and Abby. Matt, it happened, and I know we talked about it, and we baptized him into Christ here. Precious memories. We all like to hear good news, good stories, good memories. Even in the midst of hard times, we have pleasant memories. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 6 through 10. The memories that we have and they're had when faith is working. When we have fellowship with one another, fellowship that is enjoyed, and when there is steadfastness of faith or firmness of faith. And reading the text, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith. Doesn't help to start a stopwatch if you don't start it. So none of that counted, by the way. Now you're on the clock. Or I am. Anyway, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. We know that we're saved by grace. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, and verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. 
For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8-10 Saved by grace, through faith. God's part. But man has a part in that as well. As we turn to James and see what James said in chapter 2, he was showing us both sides of many aspects of the Christian life. A faith that is trust in God, but a faith that's called out to do something. And he says in chapter 2, verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You see, he's drawing a contrast there. He's taking them from saying, If someone says he has faith, but he's not proving it by what he does, he says, Look at it this way. You see your brother, he's in need of clothing or food. And you say, be warmed and be filled, but you don't do anything to help him get clothing, to help him get food. He says, what have you done? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. You show me, show me your faith without the works. What's he saying there? You prove to me that you have faith. I hear your words. But anybody can say those words. Show it to me. You say that you have faith. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? If we're not demonstrating our faith, do we really have it? I think that's something that James is asking. And he goes on with the example of Abraham. Now we might say this is an initial aspect of our obedience to the gospel of Christ. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What he's doing is trying to get them to see the correlation. That faith is demonstrated, whether it is in our initial justification, obedience to the gospel of Christ, or whether it's continuing to live. And follow as we walk in the footsteps of Christ. We know that our good deeds or our good works will not save us. They'll not save anybody. But they must be a part of our life. They're evidence of faith. Of genuine faith. If faith doesn't prompt us to do something in this world, then faith is either dead or lacking. And so we can see that people who once started strong in Christ, but no longer are in the race that they're... Well, they quit. And a quitter is not living by faith. Somebody who's sitting on the sidelines, though they may be sitting in the pew, may be just sitting there and not doing anything. There's a story told by a preacher of a gospel meeting they had, a revival, if you will. I don't know how he termed it. But the preacher was going on about that people needed to quit. They needed to quit doing things. And then probably turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. 
That's the works of the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 17. The works of the, of the flesh, that's his desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, those things are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do these things that you please, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I warn you, forewarn you, that just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He may have also been thinking about what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, as he talks about our life in Christ. He says in verse chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 3 and following, For the time already, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So you had the time. You lived that way before, and you don't need to live that way now. That may have been some of where his sermon was coming from. There was a sweet little old lady that came forward. There's every, every congregation has at least one or two sweet little old ladies, right? Of course. You know, there was this one sister. She came forward. And the preacher says, why did you come forward? Everybody knows that you've never done anything wrong. You haven't been living in any of these ways. She said, well, that's just the point. I haven't been doing anything. And I'm quitting. I'm quitting doing nothing. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to let my faith be seen by the works that I do. And if a person's doing little or nothing for the Lord, for the cause of Christ in this world, it's time to get involved and do something. That's what preaching the gospel is all about. That's what encouraging one another is all about. That's what living the Christian life is all about. As we think of the Olympics and we think of spring, it's hard to imagine the Winter Olympics finishing up, but we know that spring is here. It was, it was warm last night, 51 degrees this morning when I got up. It's rough, but it was warm, it was hot. I don't care for it. But in the spring comes track. And the Olympics, again, track and field, sporting events. It was in the Summer Olympics again in Beijing and China. Our country does well in the Olympics usually. Some events we do well and others we maybe not do quite as well. Uh, here in the Winter Olympics we took the gold medal in curling. Now curling isn't my thing to watch. Bobsledding maybe, that's kind of interesting. Ski jumping, that's just wow, how can they do that? Curling, I don't know. But anyway, track and field, Summer Olympics, right? Both our men and women's teams at that time in the 4 by 100 meter relay teams, they dropped the baton. You drop the baton, you're disqualified from the race. We have to see that we don't drop the baton of faith when it comes to living for Christ. We must keep the faith, do the work. We must hand off the baton of faith to others. Paul said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
That's the baton of faith. We're handing it off to them so that we will have these precious memories of faith that is working. But as we do that, we're in relationship with one another. And what Paul said here in chapter 3 of Timothy in the verses before us is that there are pleasant memories, precious memories, when fellowship is enjoyed with one another. Again, the text, this time from the NIV in verses 6 and 10. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. You see, there's always something that needs to be done in the kingdom. We always have visitors. I think it's rare that we don't have somebody visit our services. They may be traveling through. They may be from Yuma. We always try to find out. We have visitors with us today, several. And we are thankful for your presence. Especially those who linger around for several weeks in the wintertime. But we don't mind it if they're just here for two or three. It's an encouragement to see them and get to know them and share with them as well. But one church had, as the preacher tells the story, had a couple of visitors that kept coming. Whether the story is true or not is really irrelevant. It illustrates the point just fine. But there were two men that kept coming. One of them said to himself, I'm going to give this church one more chance. They are really an unfriendly group. They've never spoken to me one time. I'm going to go again Sunday, and if nobody speaks to me, I'm leaving. I'll never go back. The other one said, I don't really care that this church is so cold and unfriendly. If no one speaks to me Sunday, I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to speak to them. Well, the next Sunday came and went. The usher happened to see both of these men, and one in front of the other, and as usual, after service, no one greeted them. The first man rose up, rose up, stalked out forever, never coming back. The second man turned and put his hand out to the first person next to him and said, Good morning, sir. I'm glad to see you. It was a good sermon, wasn't it? I must have been preaching. <laughs> I was wondering if anybody's going to catch that. Anyway, both men were pleased at having made a friend and continue to come. You know, sometimes we just have to do that. We know that we don't like an unfriendly church. And we know that we have been to churches where maybe there was a lack of warmth, a lack of friendliness, and maybe we didn't want to go back. But what did you do? What did we do when we were visiting that church? Did we make the effort to be friendly and engaging? Or did we just get out the back door as quick as we could? You know, I know that people come through here, we're halfway between Phoenix and San Diego, and they're traveling, and they have places to go and things to do, people to see, all sorts of things going on. Yeah, we have to be sure that we see them at least a little bit. And maybe one of those things is, you know, when we have somebody come in, introduce them to somebody else. So that, oh, you're from, you're... Former Marine, your former Army, your somebody. We have somebody here who's serving right now at NCAS. Introduce them so that there's a commonality and they can start striking up some bonds with others. And that they'll know that we're warm and receptive to them. Precious memories come from a time and period of good fellowship among people who bless and encourage one another. 
Now I know if I pause and take a few moments and have you turn to somebody next to you and give them a word of encouragement, some of you might have a struggle with that. You might not know what to say. And others wouldn't have any problem because you have relationships and you know one another. But imagine this to illustrate the idea of discouragement, that we need to go out and do something because this world is filled with discouragers out there. Charles Schultz is famous for his Snoopy, his penis comic strip. Well, one day Snoopy was out sliding on a pond that had frozen over. Now Lucy comes up to him, straps on her skates, and she's skating out there and comes up to Snoopy and she just looks at him and says, you're sliding, you're not skating. And she continued to lecture him. You don't have any skates on. Skating is when you have skates on. You're not skating at all. You're just sliding. Well, Snoopy walks off rather sad. And, you know, the thing pops up and he's thinking, that how could I be so stupid? I thought I was having fun. You can really take the fun out of somebody's life when you become a discourager. His commentary on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, William Barclay notes that it's one of the highest human duties to encourage others. It's easy to laugh at someone's ideals. It's easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It's easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers, he says. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation, if cheer has kept a man on his feet, And blessed is the one who speaks such a word. Giving back and looking back to visit with good Christian friends can be wonderfully encouraging. I've talked about John Maples in the past. John Maples, his family was a missionary in South Africa. I've gotten to know him only through telephone and email and text messaging. And John just seems like a great guy. He's just a couple of years older than I am. And that's not why he's a great guy, but we have some things in common. And our love for the Lord is one of them. Our love for people is one of them. And John has done a lot of things in addition to preaching and growing up on the mission field. He's right now, he's doing counseling. He's got a degree in counseling and he's trying to help people in that way. And one of our conversations, I shared something of some thoughts that have been going through and I was going to write something about it. And he says, well... You can put my name on it, and I'll take the heat that way. I said, well, I'll send it to you when I get it done. But when I was talking about it, what he did was he called me back. He said, are you doing okay? Because, you know, maybe you're just a little bit discouraged being out there and struggling with the things that the church is going through. I said, I'm, I'm okay. And, you know, it's just, you know, things happen, and we have to deal with it. And he's called me on a couple of occasions, just out of the blue, just to check up on me. And, you know, that's, that's fun. It's kind of nice. Now, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't called him to check on him. And so I guess I need to. Because we need to be an encouragement to one another. Our brother Eugene Johnson is going through some things right now. He preaches at Desert Diamond Church of Christ. I mentioned this in the adult class. He's struggling trying to get a church started. He's working with at the county jail and the Crossroads Mission. It's not working with people that have a standard of commitment. He's had some military people come in and military people come and go. They have their tour here for a year, maybe three, and they're gone. But he's struggling. 
and he's struggling financially. He sent out a text message last night to a lot of people on his phone list. I happen to be one of them. And he just noted that it, he, they needed something. I don't know exactly what it was. But he said, if people could share with me a couple hundred dollars, I don't know if that's ongoing for the next six months or a one-time $200. But somebody responded back, I'll send you $200. And I talked to people here after mentioning it, and they said, who is he? How do we, we get it to him? And I said, you can, I'll get you his information, and you can send it to him. Or you can just give it to Central, and we will send him one large check. And that will be an encouragement to him. You Raise Me Up is a song written by Ralph Loveland and Brenda Graham. Josh Groban in the U.S. made it popular when he covered it in March of 2004. The words, part of the lyrics are, When I am down and oh my soul so weary, When troubles come and my heart burdened be, Then I am still and wait here in the silence. Until you come and sit a while with me. You raise me up so I can stand on the mountains. You raise me up to walk on stormy seas. I am strong when I am on your shoulders. You raise me up to more than I can be. That's what we have to be. We need to be able to sit down with people and encourage them. To help them to go through the the daily battles of life. To make them strong. And that's what encouragement is. And then finally, as we think about the good news, the blessings, the precious memories of those who have encouraged us, it's also pleasant when people remain faithful in the Lord. We know how discouraging it is when people lose their faith and they leave the Lord. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your faith and may complete what is lacking in your faith. For now we really live if you're standing firm in the Lord. The NIV says, since you are standing firm in the Lord. You know, there's a phenomenon going on right now, and it's... I don't know if it's due to the economy, student debt, but a lot of adult children have been moving back home to live with mom and dad. Uh, One situation, a woman tells her story of my sister has adult children living at home that are just too lazy to work. They want everyone to take care of them and their children. They'd rather sit around all day and watch TV and smoke instead of getting off their backside and going to work. I'm cleaning up a little bit. Uh, When they need money for gas, cigarettes, food, rent, electricity, what do they do? They run to my mom and dad and put on a sad story. And that goes on and on. Dr. Jerry Chapman writes, 75% of college graduates will move back home at least for a season. Sometimes it's financial. They want to get their feet on the ground. Some of them can't get a job right away. So it's either on the streets with a friend or go home to mom and dad. And at mom and dad, it's easier to go. So sometimes they start while they're still in college. Maybe they flunk out of college. Sometimes they go to the military, get in trouble, get kicked out. Sometimes they get married. They get in trouble, come home, sometimes with children. And the problems just continue on. Well, it feels good to know when our children don't have to move back home. When they're out on their own and they're doing it, 
and we help them as much as we can to get on their own so that they can feel good about themselves and so that they can contribute to their life and be an encouragement to others. And so you feel good about it when they go get out of school, get a, work, get a job and make a living for themselves. You feel like you've accomplished something. But living that way is not the only thing. It's when they continue faithfully in the Lord. And so, I want my children to be faithful to God. That's the most important thing that there is for us. For them to obey the gospel and to live the Christian life. That's not always happening in our families. Because for some reason, some of them drift away. Maybe it was never important to them. So what do we do with those who have not launched their faith? We try to do things for them. We try to teach them gently as much as we can. I'm reminded of a man at Sunset whose name was Marvin Taft. He was a non-commissioned officer serving at NATO headquarters in Europe. He was the aide to General Alexander Haig, who would later become Secretary of State under President Reagan. When Marvin was at Sunset, they said he would record all the classes. And when there was something that really got him excited, which was often in those classes, you can't imagine, uh, it was just tremendous. He would either send part of that recording, or he'd send some notes, and he'd send it to various friends and family. So they could receive the encouragement in the Lord that he was. Because he was concerned about them. And if they were Christians, he wanted them to be strengthened in their faith. That's what we have to do. We pray for our children that their faith will grow strong. We give them an example. We encourage them to stand firm. And if they haven't obeyed the gospel, we do what we can to help them see why they need to. And sometimes that just means we love them and we just pray for them daily, multiple times a day, that they will turn to Christ and live faithfully in Him. And that's how we should feel toward one another, toward other people in the community, not just our family members. One of the saddest things that I hate to hear about people in churches is that, oh, that I've known, oh, they don't go to church anymore. They've fallen away. They've dropped out for this reason or for another. That's bad news. But the good news is that those people who continue to live for Christ and stay faithful to Him. You know, I've got many friends that are right there. And we can start up, we can be gone for miles apart and years apart. Never no contact. And we can get together with them. It's just like we never left. And we have fond memories of our time when we did worship together. And those memories help us to reconnect so quickly and so easily because we have a common faith. As we studied this week in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said after teaching the rich young ruler about what he must do, and Peter said that he had left everything to follow him, Mark chapter 10 and verse 28. He says... Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will not receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, and along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. 
But see, the encouraging thing about being in Christ is we have that available to us. Our family is not limited to those, to our immediate family that we lose contact with. I've got a brother in Pennsylvania, I've got a sister in Illinois, one in Kansas, my parents are gone. I don't have contact, I didn't have any cousins there. The few cousins, a couple of cousins that I had on my mother's side, they've died as well. I have one or two left, I think. I don't have any contact with them, I haven't had contact for years. They wouldn't know me and I wouldn't know them, but my Christian family, I do. And those that I don't know, when I meet them, we're family. Good news is pleasant memories. These things only happen when we make them happen. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. One life to live, and it will soon be over. Only what is done in the name of Christ will last. Only what we do for Christ will produce good news and produce pleasant memories that those who remain after us will remember us fondly and lovingly of our commitment to them and to the Lord. I don't know where you are today in view of this. You may not be a child of God, or maybe your faith walk has become difficult. If you've never obeyed the gospel, all things are ready, and we'd encourage you to obey the gospel by responding to the invitation of Jesus. If your walk's gotten a little tough, we'd encourage you to seek the prayers of one another, of the brethren, and let us call you to our side and encourage you with words of faith. If you have any reason to respond to the invitation of Jesus, please come to him once together. We